This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Judith Tankard is a landscape historian, author, and preservation consultant. She's the author or co-author of 12 illustrated books on landscape history, including her most recent publication, Beatrix Verand, Garden Artist, Landscape Architect. Over her long career, Judith has traced and made visible the lives, struggles, and achievements of some of the most notable female garden designers and landscape architects in the U.S. in the early 20th century. Judith, after meeting you, after visiting your gardens, after visiting many gardens of both Ellen Biddle Shipman and Beatrix Ferrand, I am so pleased to be in conversation with you today. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Well, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. I'd love for you to describe for listeners how you would like to introduce yourself. What is your relationship to plants, to gardens, to gardening in your life right now? I'm not a professional gardener. I'm not a horticulturist. I'm not a botanist. So we can cast those aside. But what I am really is an art historian. I studied art and architectural history. And I'm really interested in working relationships between artists and gardeners, landscape architects and architects, and how they all collaborate with one and how they, especially how a house and garden relate to one another. So what I've done for the last 30 years is write books and give lectures and teach courses on the interrelationship between houses and gardens. and. I've looked at very famous partnerships, such as Gertrude Jigo and her famous partner, Edwin Lutyens. And I've also had a look at a couple of um, wonderful examples of American landscape architects, too. I would love for you to maybe just highlight some of the influences in your life that led you to studying these exact kind of relationships in our culture and in our history, how they came to be valuable to you, Judith. Well, I actually came to garden design and gardening rather late in life. As I said, I studied architectural history and Mm -hmm. I'm particularly interested in some of the English architects of the what we call the arts and crafts era, particularly uh, Lutyens. I'd never heard of Gertrude Jekyll, but I was introduced to her through the writing, to the, through the work of Lutyens. And in the 1980s, way back in another era, my husband and I would make yearly trips to England to see the work of Lutyens, and probably we stomped through lots of Gurdjieffical gardens without knowing it. But somehow we ended up in going to secondhand bookstores. And I kept seeing these books by this woman named Gurdjieffical who <laughs> had a relationship with Lutyens. And I thought, well, these are kind of interesting. And I started buying them. But as I tell everybody, I never read the books. I just bought them. I was very interested in them. They were beautifully designed, but what absolutely captivated me about her books were these beautiful black and white photographs that she took of her garden. And that really was what opened the door for me for the whole era of garden history. That's so interesting, too, that they were the black and white photographs of the gardens. I think there's something very uh, evocative and 
different in looking at a garden through a black and white image than through a color image. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, that, that's a wonderful observation. Uh, and I think it's a point that's lost today with the glossy color photographs that publishers always want for their books and budding gardeners always want to get inspiration from. You see so much more in a black and white photograph. And a couple of years later, I had the privilege of working with a renowned landscape architect, Michael Van Valkenburg, on an exhibition on Gertrude Jekyll's black and white photographs, mm. the albums for which are uh, in her archives at the University of California at Berkeley. And we had a wonderful time working together, pulling new prints of these beautiful, beautiful black and white photographs. And the exhibition traveled all over the United States and all over Britain. But this was many, many years ago. But I think it opened the eyes of many, many people to the nuances of gardens and garden design, mm -hmm. looking at black and white photographs. And do you think that's because in looking at the black and white photograph without the colors to uh, kind of um, capture us or, or keep our attention, we are better able to see the design elements uh, as they either complement or contrast with each other? What do you think it is about that, Judith? Yeah, that's very difficult to say. I think you you do actually see the design and you're not distracted by the color. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's exactly it in one sentence. Yeah. So you, you are buying these books, you're not reading them, but you are captivated by the strength of these images and, and the design insights they, they offer out to you. And take us from there. You, you go, you clearly start work on, looking at design in this exhibition, what was your arc of work from there that led you deeper and deeper into uh, documenting and being a historian of, of landscape? My husband and I lived uh, in suburban Boston. We had a what you call a center entrance colonial house. It was an opportunity for a garden in the front and the back. We really didn't know too much about gardening. My mother was a gardener, but of course I didn't pay any attention to what she was doing. <laughs> and someone suggested, well, you ought to have a garden. And I mean, I knew a little bit about plants. And so my husband said, well, maybe we should hire a garden designer to come and design a garden for us. And I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. Mm. So um, it turned out that the the wife of one of my husband's clients was a garden designer, and she had gone to this program at Radcliffe College called the Radcliffe Seminars in Landscape Design. So she and her partner came, and they looked the place over, and they provided us with three different schemes. And I thought, isn't that interesting? I mean, I have to tell you, I was a complete novice. I had no idea what was going on. And they showed us these planning plans and lists of plants. And so we finally picked one and we installed it and we did a grid plan. And that's how we learned all about gardening and then taking care of it. That was point A, but point B was, I said, where did you learn how to do all of this? And they said, well, they went to this program called Radcliffe Seminars. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. And they said, well, you might be interested in it because they do history courses. Mm 
He liked the history of modern gardens and history of Italian gardens. And I thought, gee, that might be interesting. So I took some time off from work and commuted over there. And I was just absolutely fascinated because I knew the architectural and art history, but I had no idea. I was a usual idiot. I knew nothing about gardens <laughs> and that they had history. And I fell into it and I took a courses for about two years. And finally, somebody said to me, well, you're interested in this Gertrude Gico. Why don't you start teaching courses? Never in my life had I ever thought that I would be teaching courses at Radcliffe College. And I ended up teaching there for about 20 years. Right. That's how it all began. That is so, that is a wonderful story. Um, and I, I love these stories about how sort of the universe leads us the in the direction it wants us to go as it as it were. So take us to the decision to start writing about your historical research and, you know, your beginning in the, the kind of book creation. Well, when Michael and I were working on this exhibition that I talked about with Gertrude Diekel's photographs, that traveled all over. Well, there was one day when we looked at each other where Michael said, you know, this is a great idea. We ought to make it into a book. And I thought, well, why not? Early in my career, I had worked for book publishers and New York book publishers in New York. And I thought, well, I know a little bit about how a book goes together and what some of the publishers are. Why don't we give it a whirl? I mean, this just shows how naivety get you somewhere in life. <laughs> exactly. We put together a proposal and we approached one or two publishers and they kind of chuckled. But we approached a small publisher called Saga Press and they were very interested in it and thought maybe this might be a wonderful picture book. And um, they collaborated with Harry Abrams, which was a major art book publisher in New York at the time. And bingo, we had a book. Yeah. And then one, one after another, other books followed. Some were my ideas and others were publishers who, who contacted me to ask me to write, write books. So that's how that all began. So that first book was 1988, I believe, and it really sets you on this course, it seems, where you not only are researching and documenting landscape history and, and the history of landscape architecture, but you're also, in many instances, focusing on women in these roles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, that was another aspect that evolved from it. Of course, Gertrude Dickel was a woman and she earned great respect in her own lifetime and continues to do that. But she was so influential on landscape architects in general, both male and female. And I became interested in some of the women that she had influence, such as Beatrix Farrand, obviously, and Ellen Shipman and scores of other people. And most people had never heard of these women. And especially today, most people still have not heard of these women. And there are many others out there that are even more obscure, but we keep hounding it and hoping that their careers will become more to the surface and people will understand that 
women have a role in garden design and especially in the field of landscape architecture. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're speaking with landscape historian Judith Tankard, who has spent her long career documenting some of the most influential female landscape architects of the early 20th century. These include Gertrude Jekyll, Ellen Biddle Shipman, and the seminal work and life of Beatrix Ferrand. Stay with us. We'll be right back for more on Judith's career, bringing more attention and esteem to these groundbreaking women designers. We'll be back. Hey, it's Jennifer. Pure luck, pure luck. I'm thinking about this and thinking about Judith Tankard attributing her receiving her first grant to the idea of luck. Next week's guest, Maria Popova describes the word luck as an anthropocentric term for that baffling blur of both time and chance. And I might add, effort, aggregated. Very little happens by pure luck. And as the very accurate saying goes, you can't win if you don't play. Judith Tankard applied for that grant, and she got the grant. Likewise, it is very unlikely that you will grow something if you don't plant something or tend something. As we near the solstice, I ask myself daily, what will I resolve to grow and tend in the next circle around the sun? And I'm wondering about you. What will you grow and tend? What seeds will you plant? What lives will you pay attention to? What will you compost? What lessons will you commit to learning? A very healthy handful of you have recently written to me, allowing that the inspiration you've gleaned these six years of cultivating place have propelled you into the advanced degree studies you are currently undertaking. Wow, do you know how incredible that is for me to hear? And so I ask, what about it? What are we, all of us, you and me, wanting to grow next? I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with landscape historian Judith Tankard, who, as we come back, is sharing more about how she came to be an eminent historian on this interesting group of early 20th century female landscape architects and garden designers, and how their very different careers offer us all Today, lessons in tenacity, in navigating sometimes hostile career fields, and lessons in career achievement as we look to the important and intersectional future of landscape design and architecture in our world. Well, I wish I could say I thought of the idea of doing uh working on Ellen Shipman and Beatrix Theron, but with Ellen Shipman and a publisher asked me to do a book on her. And I had never heard of Ellen Shipman, but once again, I saw these beautiful vintage photographs, some of them taken by Maddie Edwards Hewitt and other vintage women photographers. 
showing these exquisite gardens. And I thought, oh, I'm just absolutely captivated by this. What do we know about this woman? Well, not very much. Her archives are at Cornell. So I spent maybe about two years doing research and voila, we had a book and uh, that was published in around in 1990, right? It was uh, 92 or so, and then a revised edition with many different corrections and updates uh, published by the Library of American Landscape History came out in 2018. Wow. So that was the story on Ellen Shipman. Yeah. No, wait. Beatrix Farrand was the same story. Um, okay, so before we move fully into Beatrix Farrand, I want you to, if you can, you know, to the extent you can, Describe for listeners who Ellen Biddle Shipman was and why she was important that that a that a publisher would want a book on her. Yeah, that's a difficult question because she's certainly not a household word. Mm -hmm. I think um, among all the women landscape architects of that era, including Marion Coffin, whom I'm sure some people have heard of. She had a connection with the DuPont family and in Delaware, a number of other women who were lesser known, did exquisite gardens. She did over 600 gardens, but today she's not very well known, but she had wonderful archives that were left to Cornell University. And she managed to hire top end, top quality uh, photographers to, document her work and her work was covered in the 1920s and 1930s in all the popular magazines at the time. I knew nothing about her until I started doing research, which took over two years to ferret out articles on her. And I, the turning point was when I met her granddaughter mm. who had family memorabilia and scrapbooks and could just give me the personal side of of this woman and what her family was like and the training and it all kind of came together the career plus the the personal side side so that's that's how i got on to ellen shipman her work is exquisite and there are wonderful examples of her work that people can visit today, including Dew Gardens, the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens in Jacksonville, Florida, and also her masterpiece with this Longview House and Gardens in New Orleans. So am I right in thinking as I think about your work and I think about the trajectory of just even this handful of women that you've mentioned that we've already talked about, that that they were they were influential in the early formation of American landscape architecture um, and, you know, sort of bringing the influence of the arts and crafts movement to the U.S. as well. And then they kind of fell out of focus somehow or somewhere, which is why they got a little bit lost in, you know, the publicity of other landscape architects, mainly men and um, or namely men. And what is that about? Yeah, that's a very good point, and it's a, it's very difficult to answer. You know, Ellen Shipman was top of the game in the 1920s and 1930s, but by the time she died in 1950, nobody knew who she was. Nobody remembered her. 
Um, she would, 1950s, you think of your grandmother's gardens with wavy edge borders and the, the look was completely out and um, that was gone and modernism came and went and, you know, we were on to something completely different. Mm. So that, that, that explains the demise of some of these historic gardens that were beautiful in the 1920s by the 1950s and 60s. They were passe. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Ellen Shipman is that she had no, no truck with the ASLA. She never was a member of it. She didn't need it. She didn't hire men. <laughs> she tried, she trained women only in her office and very busy years. She had up to 12 women working in her office. She trained them all. Many of them went on to um open up their own offices all across the United States. So she was a powerball. Mm-hmm. She was she was incredible. But nobody's still today, nobody's heard of her. Yeah. Interesting. It's interesting to think about that. Um the relevance or irrelevance as styles come and go, but but also just what what our archivists and our publicists keep alive and in the front of people's imaginations. And if my first book by you, which would have been, I, I would have gotten in the 90s as a, you know, a young, really avid gardener in my young adulthood, um, that Ellen Biddle Shipman was the first book I got by you, Judith Tankard. And um, so I'm a little bit of a fangirl, as you know, Judith. And um, <laughs> but then you you move on to Beatrix Ferrand, and she is a little bit different uh, and certainly is involved with the American Society of Landscape Architecture. What leads you to Beatrix and your first focus on her? Well, Beatrix is a completely different story. Mm-hmm. Her, she had a different range of clients, different background altogether. Probably was a much better designer. Designed, say, 200 gardens, beautiful gardens, as opposed to 600. Um, we know a little bit less about the operation of her office. The her clientele was completely different from Ellen Shipman. Mm-hmm. Ellen Shipman's clients were basically garden club women. Mm-hmm. And the first woman in the garden club would have a have a garden and then all the other women in the garden club would, would commission a garden for Ellen Shipman. So when she went out to Akron, Ohio, or whatever, every every single woman in the club would have a would have a, a garden by Ellen Shipman. That <laughs> that's not the way Beatrix Farron worked. Mm-hmm. She was much more elegant. She had uh, her training was completely different. And her clients were different too. She was more, much more upper, upper echelon design work was completely different. Most people have heard of Dumbarton Oaks, whereas most people have not heard of the Kummer Museum of Art and Gardens. But they're an interesting comparison in their differences and these two very different ways in the design world and uh, what people sort of take on or what what they are looking to attain. I mean... Talk about Beatrix's design education 
and that upper echelon connection and maybe how she like went head on with what you might think of as a very male dominated world to be at the top of its design um, names. Well, Beatrix's entire life was devoted to her profession. I mean, she had Edith Wharton, her aunt, right by her side the whole time. As a young woman, she traveled to Europe to see all the great gardens of the world where she learned about design. She was able to learn about plants from Charles Sprague Sargent. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Mm -hmm. She didn't marry until she was 40, so she was able to spend every day, every minute of the day on um, her design and preparing her designs and learning about plants and also writing for Scribner's Magazine and other things. Ellen Shipman's life was much more complicated. She married as a teenager. She was 19. She had three children and her husband was a philanderer. He deserted her. She was, she was looking for, looking to garden design actually as a uh, way to earn a living. Mm -hmm. So complete, we've got two completely different stories here. Mm -hmm. yeah. One was kind of upper class and one was middle class. And Ellen Shipman was trying desperately to support herself. And it turned out she was very good at what she did. Let's go now into your newest publication, Beatrix Ferrand, Garden Artist, Landscape Architect, which came out this year in March of this year by Monticelli. And this is, to some extent, an update of your 2009 monograph on Beatrix Ferrand, Garden Artist, Landscape Architect. Um, but it it gets into a couple of different lenses, which I think are important, and I think they're particularly important today. The difference between 2009 and 2022, I think, is part of that. Talk about the first book and your maybe your research process and some of the greatest takeaways from that. And then we'll talk about what some of the updates are. Well, the first book took, took several years of intensive research and several trips out to mm -hmm. UC Berkeley, combing the archives to put it all together and try to come up with a career and to pro profile. And um, it served its purpose for, for many years. Other, other people have written, uh, not necessarily books, but um, many articles, scholarly articles about different aspects of Beatrix Farron. So much new information has come come to light mm -hmm. since that 2009 book. The 2009 book uh, has been out of print for a number of years, and it was decided that it was time for a new edition, plus it was the 150th anniversary of her birth and all sorts of other important landmarks. So it was decided to do a new edition. And the purpose of mm -hmm. the new edition was not, not to showcase any new facts about her life, nothing really had changed that much in the life profile, but to bring people up to date on 
garden restorations, gardens that were just had been discovered in the 2009 edition had been restored. So we were looking at a place like Belfield, which was done in the 1913-1914. One of her early gardens has now become a mature garden. So we had some new photographs taken of that. The Rockefeller Garden in Maine, of course, is always undergoing changes and that really did merit some new photographs and updates. Dumbarton Oaks, of course, would merit a book all by itself for all the ongoing changes. There are many lessons at Dumbarton Oaks because it's an aging garden and how do you how do you replace trees that are dying and shrubs that are not doing well? And I mean, it's a garden that, that started in 1920 and here we are in 2020, a hundred years later. So we felt we had to deal with some of those issues. So it really on many different aspects was uh, an opportunity to bring up to date some of these and, and in a couple instances new little bits and pieces have come to light so that was the whole purpose of the new book and we also wanted to update the bibliography because many different articles had come out several different films had been produced and a lot of new information had come out on beatrix Farron. yeah yeah She's the only female founder of the American Society of Landscape Architects, as already noted. But at the same time, one of the things you emphasize in, in your study of her is that she really preferred to be known as a landscape gardener. Is that right? Is that the right term? Yes, yes. She yeah. didn't want to be associated with the men and who were landscape. <laughs> and yeah, there is a big contradiction there. I mean, it was an honor, obviously, for her to be sitting at the same table with members of the Olmsted firm and other other male hotshots. But for whatever reason, she she was invited to join in to become a benefactor and uh, become a sponsor for this new organization. So someone must have thought highly enough of her work early on in her career in 1899 she hadn't been in business all that many years so there we have it the asla but she herself always referred to herself as a landscape gardener so there are many contradictions about this woman this is Cultivating Place. Landscape historian Judith Tankard has documented some of the most influential female landscape designers and architects of the early 20th century. In 2022, Judith's newest and exceptionally up-to-date retrospective on the first female member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, Beatrix Ferrand, garden artist, landscape architect, was published by Monticelli Press. We'll be right back after a break for more on signature Beatrix Ferrand Garden Designs. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know, something about this conversation with Judith Tankard at exactly this time of year has me really thinking about time. 
the perception of time and the value of time in our gardens. How sometimes, like the longest lived of these gardens designed by Ellen Biddle Shipman or Beatrix Ferrand, our gardening impulse and its results can last for decades and centuries even. And how on the other hand, the results of our gardening impulse might just last one day, one month, one season, one year. And there are pros and cons, benefits and consequences to both of those truths. And I think as we think about what we want to plant, what we want to tend, and what we want to pay forward to the future, we must keep this in mind about our own gardening impulses, the footprints they leave behind, but also the gifts they pass forward. May these gifts shelter and nurture, encourage and empower all manner of life, many lifetimes beyond ours. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with landscape historian Judith Tankard. As we come back, she is sharing more about the life and times of Beatrix Ferrand, the first female member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, whose dream was to educate and inspire other designers and gardeners. I mean, at Yale University, for instance, there are 40 different courtyards that it had recently been um, noted that where she designed mm. and at Princeton, she was a landscape architect there for over 20 years, which is in, starting when she was a young, young woman. She did a significant amount of work there, but it was all very restrained what she said in her reports and any of the articles that she wrote about her work as a uh, landscape designer. The buildings were to take precedence and the plantings were there for the enjoyment of the students. So there were no fussy blooming plants really. Mostly it was climbers on the buildings and very, um, very non-residential work. So that was a whole nother aspect of her work that was very different from her her residential. And she did a tremendous amount of work on the, on the West Coast at Occidental College and Caltech, but working with architects who were part of the campus scene out there was very difficult for her. They had no respect for her. In some cases, she was never paid. So it was very challenging very challenging work and she did a lot of work at the University of Chicago but was abruptly dismissed from her job there so I think in the end she much much preferred working with Mildred Bliss at Dumbarton Oaks. Yeah. Okay. So let's move to her residential work her and some of her signature um, still surviving and thriving although adapting works such as Dumbarton Oaks and the Rockefeller Garden up in Maine. 
what would you call her signature strength there? Dunbar Noakes obviously is a year-round garden where it has extraordinary topography. It's a little bit of England, a little bit of France, a little bit of everything. Um, and it's a wonderful Dumbarton Oaks Park, which is adjacent to it. It's it's everything, a culmination of her career, actually. The Rockefeller Garden is a beautiful summer garden. It only goes from June until early um, September at best. And it's very plant intensive, although it's a Chinese Everybody who's been there knows it has the Oriental, what was then called Oriental Garden on the uh, exterior and the walls surrounding it. Completely different. It shows how versatile she was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She didn't have a set formula that like Ellen Shipman did. Right. And I think maybe that actually gets to what I think of as her signature, just as a lay person and having read your books, uh, but also having visited these gardens, is she was really, really just sharp at working a garden into the existing site and creating flow, but also really rich plantings in both spaces and her hardscape in the various topographies and terrains and climates is just, it's very complementary somehow. Yeah, she was a genius at this. And the question that I've always had when I've worked with Beatrix Farron is where did all this come from? Yeah. Where did she learn it? Was it all instinctive? Did it come when she was a teenager when Reef Point was being built and she wandered the grounds there looking at the native plants? Surely her, that she, part of it came from this extraordinary library that she had at Reef Point that she began collecting these books and folios when she first started out as a young woman where she learned about design but in the end, you've got to wonder where it all came from, where she had this wonderful insight of being able to look at a property and know exactly what to do. Right. And I think, you know, maybe that speaks to the nature nurture question we all have about what we do and where we go, because we can all go visit uh, gardens in France and England and Spain and still not be able to bring it home and do something meaningful with it uh, and integrate it into right. the woods and coast of Maine. Now you brought up Reef Point. I would love you to talk about what Reef Point was and what her hopes for it were uh, in her lifetime. Yes, it's, it's rather a sad story. Reef Point, of course, mm -hmm. was purchased by her parents when she was uh, a young girl um she watched the house go up and when she and her husband max moved there in retirement she they established the reef point gardens corporation in the hopes of running a school there and this is as i said in retirement in the 1940s bar harbor is way up there and um it was hard for people to get to. And while they had thousands of visitors, day visitors come and look at these extraordinary gardens that she had set out there, it wasn't successful as a school, which was unfortunate. And she was very disappointed at that. 
And then after Max Farron died in 1945, she carried on the mission herself, trying to make ends meet, and it really didn't work. The house that her parents had built had been long since been converted into classrooms. It really wasn't a comfortable house to live in anymore. So at that point, when she was 80 years old, she decided to, it was time to sell up and retire. And she made the awesome decision to tear down the house and recycle many of the components of it and move five miles down the road to Garland Farm, where she took many of the artifacts with her, including many of her plants, and settled into this ideal retirement home, but not after many of her plants went to establish two new gardens up there, Astaku and Thuya Garden, which are in Northeast Harbor, which I'm sure many people have gone to visit and they can see Dawn Redwoods and also the azaleas, rhododendrons, and many of Beatrix Aaron's plants that were originally at Reef Point. Reef Point is now privately owned and there are several new houses on the on the property. Yeah. And it's one of those names that I think um, gardeners hear all the time uh, in regard to, you know, like there'll be a, I don't know, a, a beautiful pot made by a studio and they'll call it Reef Point. And um, yeah. there's a lot of references to this term. And it, you know, for me thinking about it and having been up and visited all of these gardens, the the heartbreak of her dedication to the idea of progressing the field of design and landscape architecture and wanting to create this space for young designers to to flourish and grow and have resources to see that fail and then have to dismantle it or choosing to dismantle it instead of letting it fail even more later or have it you know kind of scavenged in some way by someone else um that that's a very painful story judith Yes, it's very sad, and it was it, part of what pushed it along was this massive uh, forest fire in 1948 that uh, just destroyed part of the Mount Desert Island and burned down many of the summer homes up there and completely destroyed the economy. It was the end of the wonderful summer days up there, and she couldn't get a tax break, and yeah, all of that. So it was a pretty sad end. Yeah. And yet her legacy does absolutely live on in the beautiful restorations at Garland Farm, as you already noted, in Astaku and Thuya there in Bar Harbor. This is a great sort of garden Mecca field trip for, for anybody who hasn't been up there to see these gardens as in the height of summer, um, because that's when they're open. Well, no visit is complete without going to Garland Farm, which is now the headquarters of the Beatrix Farron Society. And they've tried to replicate the library that Beatrix Farron gave to UC Berkeley. And they have yearly exhibits. Um, for the last couple of years, they've had replicas of this incredible herbarium sheets that she gave to UC Berkeley. So it's well worth a stop on your visit. Definitely. 
What do you think are the greatest lessons from these women and these movements that you hope young designers or students of of garden design in general might take home with them? Well, I think with a lot of these historic women designers, there's a compatibility and hominess, I hate to use that word, that you find in their work that maybe you don't find in male counterpoints. There's a certain um, friendliness. There's a respect for plants, but in particular, it's the whole environment. I mean, you can go to Dumbarton Oaks and you can appreciate the beautiful layout in there, but you're also looking at the restrained use of plant material there and the beautiful transition from formal gardens such as the kitchen garden and the uh, and also the um, rose garden and then swooping down the hill to sweeps of daffodils and then into Dumbarton Oaks Park with all its stone bridges and waterways. Mm. I mean, it's hard to imagine a man having designed that. Yeah. There's a very comfortable feel to all the spaces. Comfortable, of that, that's a good word. That was a word I was struggling for. Yes. Very comfortable. And her, her, her rich plant palettes in some of these spaces. I mean, clearly she was very restrained on the campuses and even in some portions of Dumbarton Oaks, but her her rich use of plants and her clearly love of them and respect for them is, is evident in all of her designs. Yeah, and I think the, her use of plants is perfection, but you're not bowled over by them. You don't go mm-hmm. there to ooh and ah over the plants, wherever it is. You're not there mm-hmm. to look at the plants. You're there to look at the design. You know, is there, you know, especially after having finished this next book in your long list of um, research and writing, is there anything you'd like to add about your own personal growth or insights from this focus you have had in your career? Well, I think I've about done it with, uh, you, it doesn't get better than Beatrix Farron. Um, I can't think of any other person that I might want to do after that. It takes a lot of energy and a lot of time to do the research and do a proper investigation of people. So I think I've been there and done it on these people. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It has been such an honor to speak with you and uh, explore this, this beautiful career of yours. Well, thank you for inviting me. This has been fun. Judith Tangard is a landscape historian, an author, and a preservation consultant. She is the author or co-author of 12 illustrated books on landscape history, including her most recent publication, Beatrix Ferrand, Garden Artist, Landscape Architect. In 2019, her book, Ellen Biddle Shipman and the American Garden, was the winner of the J.B. Jackson Book Prize. 
Judith Tankard has traced and made visible the lives, struggles, and achievements of some of the most notable female garden designers and landscape architects in the U.S. in the early 20th century. And through her work, and the work of such groups as the Beatrix Ferran Society at Garland Farm in Bar Harbor, Maine, we are all able to be students of and learn from these remarkable women in landscape design. Speaking of plants and place, this week I can't help but turn to a rose, in part because so many of mine have their final blooms on them right now in early December, a little last-ditch effort at glory after our very hot summer here, and they are encouraged by the fall and early winter rains. Yes, the blooms are getting nipped at by nighttime frosts, but they just haven't given up yet. I specifically want to talk about the gorgeous English border rose, Rosa Gertrude Jekyll, who has a handful of deep pink blooms on her as I write. Named for one of the notable British garden designers landscape historian Judith Tankard has studied and brought to life for readers everywhere, the esteemed plantswoman Gertrude Jekyll was born in London in 1843. She was a horticulturalist, a garden designer, a craftswoman, a photographer, writer, and an artist. She created hundreds of gardens in the UK, Europe, and even here in the US. Jekyll died in 1932 at her well-known house and garden, Munstead Wood. To this day, she is considered highly influential in British and American garden design and beloved for her plantings, rich in color, texture, and perennial flowering plants, shrubs, bulbs, vines, all of which unfolded right across the garden year. This would in part explain why, when British rosarian David Austin set out to breed blousy, fragrant, so-called English garden roses that were not only lushly flowering and fragrant and loose in form like old garden roses should be, but they bloomed not just a single time in spring, but repeatedly across the season. He named many of his roses after famous garden people. His first rose, introduced in 1961, was a spring-flowering climber named for the floral maven and designer Constance Spry. While the deep pink, wholly double, many-petaled Rosa Gertrude Jekyll was not one of Austin's earliest introductions, it remains one of his best-selling since its introduction in 1986. In my mind and in my garden, Rosa Gertrude Jekyll is one of Austin's finer creations. It has that round, open, classic English rose shape with repeat bloom to boot. Rosa Gertrude Jekyll grows to five feet or so in our Zone 8B garden here in interior Northern California, and the rose is listed as hardy in Zones 5 through 10. While roses do need water, once established, a good shrub rose can be very drought tolerant, requiring deep watering just one or two times a week in the summer to look its best. 
While Gertrude the Rose was born in the damper conditions of the United Kingdom, she is in fact well documented as struggling with black spot fungal disease, and therefore she might be a better choice in more arid conditions, like here where I garden. And she seems fine in my hot, dry summers and often damp but cool winters. I'll begin pruning and feeding my roses in January or February here, but in colder climates, you're going to want to wait through the hardest parts of your winter to prune your roses back hard. One hint that you should be okay to prune is when your rose canes are pushing out fat green leaf buds themselves. More on pruning the different kinds of roses another time, or look to the American Rose Society online for more information about pruning and feeding in your exact location or your exact kind of rose. Gertrude Jekyll is one of the thornier roses, so wear gloves and long sleeves and beware as you approach pruning and or just pick a bloom for indoors in a vase. And thorny clippings are best put into your green waste bin rather than your home compost bin for safety's sake now and later when you're working with your compost and don't want thorns in your fingers. Gertrude Jekyll blooms on new wood, so during the blooming season, deadhead or simply keep picking flowers for indoors. Each deep pink bloom holds for several days on the shrub in weather that's not too hot. Each bloom or clusters of blooms is incredibly fragrant. Some describe it as a strong damask rose scent attributed to Gertrude's parent, Comte de Chambord, while others describe it as a classic and deep old rose scent. Either way, close your eyes, inhale a stem or a bouquet of Rosa Gertrude Jekyll, and you will know everything's coming up roses. A garden-grown rose is among the finer things in life. Actually, any bloom from the garden is among the finest things in life. Join us again next week when we have a very special pre-solstice treat for you in Garden Life Conversation with the inimitable writer, thinker, cultural historian, and sometime gardener Maria Popova of The Marginalian and The Universe in Verse. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.